No, no, no. I'm just. Uh, Okay, I think we can start. If I could have your attention, please. My name is Jean-Paul Figuier. I'm professor of the political economy of development here at the Department of International Development at the school. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you tonight to what I think is going to be a fascinating event. Let me start off by introducing our illustrious panel. I'll say a couple of words briefly about how we're going to proceed, and, and then we'll start. So at the end, to my extreme right, we have Maitrish Gatak, who's professor of economics and also a fellow of the British Academy. He previously taught at the University of Chicago. His main research interests are development economics, public economics, 
the economics of organizations. He's currently deputy head of his department and also director of de the development economics group at Stickard here at the school. He did his PhD at Harvard and before that studied economics at Presidency College, Calcutta and the Delhi School of Economics. Next to him, we have Garrett Bryan, lecturer in economics and research associate at Stickard. His main research interests are development economics, behavioral economics, exper and experimental economics. He's an affiliate of the Jamil Poverty Action Lab and Innovations for Poverty Action, co-director of the International Growth Center Cities Program, um, and he's published a number of articles in Econometrica, Journal of Political Economy, American Economic Journal, Micro, and others. I, I'm giving you a very scattered because all of our panelists have so many accomplishments and I'm just sort of picking randomly a few that, that I think are relevant to tonight. In the middle, we have Catherine Hostetler, Professor of International Development and Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, who previously taught at the Universities of Waterloo, New Mexico, and Colorado State University. Her main research interests are interdisciplinary study of environment and development at the global and regional levels, and also national level studies of environmental movements and democratic institutions. Um, she's the author of a number of books, including the forthcoming Political Economies of Energy Transition, Wind and Solar Power in Brazil and South Africa. Next to her is Deborah James, Professor of Anthropology and Fellow of the British Academy who previously taught at the universities of Witwatersrand and KwaZulu-Natal. Her main research interests are anthropology of South Africa and Southern Africa, especially political anthropology and economic anthropology. And she has a number of books, including recently, Money from Nothing, Indebtedness and Aspiration in South Africa. And then last but not least, David Graeber, professor of anthropology, also closely associated with the global justice movement and with Occupy Wall Street. He previously taught at Goldsmiths here in London and before that at Yale. His research interests include theories of value and money, manners and magic, social movements and social theory, and he's done research in Madagascar, Europe, and North America. Um, and two of his recent books include Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. So as you can see, it's, it's a very illustrious panel um, I've just given you a, a few of their, their many accomplishments and, and sources of expertise. I also want to underline its interdisciplinarity, not just amongst them, although very definitely that, but also each one of our panelists has significant experience and training doing interdisciplinary work and a lot of interest in that. Um, the way we'll proceed is that about half the event, the next 40 minutes or so, will be a discussion amongst the panel where I'll be posing a number of questions. And then the second half of the event, for probably another half hour roughly, we'll open it up to Q&A and, and uh, discussion with you. If you permit me to make one last comment, putting this event together has reminded me of some of the things that really make the LSE a wonderful place. So originally, some of you will be aware we had advertised a slightly different panel. Two colleagues had to pull out for compelling personal reasons, and I know these colleagues very well, and believe me, the reasons were compelling. Um, this has been nine months in the planning, and this all happened on Monday. And so on Monday, I sort of fell into a panic. Um, and at that stage, two other colleagues very generously agreed, and not just because they're nice people, they certainly are, but, but also they, they, they said to me, well, this sounds like a really interesting discussion. Yes, I see that this would have value for the community. I'd like to do that. So I hope you'll join me in giving a, a, a thanks to all of our panelists, but a really special thanks to Deborah James and Garrett Bryan for stepping into the breach tonight.
Okay, and so I'll sit over here and pose questions from here. And so the, we're going to begin with land. And I wanted to ask our panelists, what is the importance of land for development? I'm going to start off with economists first, and, and, and you guys can, can pitch in as you see fit. Um, thematically, substantively, what is the importance of land for development? And then sort of at a deeper level, how does one study land? What are the key variables, the key relationships we're looking for in questions of land and development? start if you're happy okay, with it. Okay, sure. Um, okay, so I am going to suggest that to an economist, uh, land is probably not that special. So we could maybe use the same ideas as we use to understand everything to understand land. I think that's probably the characteristics of lots of economists. So um, here's my perspective. So I think that there's a nice idea in economics, which is the idea that you could separate out the notion of inequality from the notion of efficiency. Efficiency being things like how well do you allocate things like land to their most productive uses, and obviously inequality being how unequal is the outcome. Uh, my personal view is if you have no reason to think that there's inefficiency in the allocation of goods, and you're concerned about poor people, the most re likely reason that a person is poor is because they don't have enough money. And if they don't have enough money, you should give them money. The reason then to be interested in land, if you're interested in poverty and you're interested in poor co countries, is if you think there are specific reasons why land is unlikely to be going to its most productive use. And then you might want, instead of spending your money on giving money to poor people, you might want to spend your money on thinking about how to improve the quality of the land market. And so from this perspective, we would be interested in why land markets might not work. And I'll give you three reasons why they may be different from other markets. That's not a complete set. So the first one is, it may be more difficult to establish a property right over land than it is over another good. So I can hold an apple in my hand and it's a little tricky for you to take it away from me. It's more difficult for me to own land and so we may need some sort of coercive force to ensure that property right. The second is that land may be subject, like many things, to problems of asymmetric information which makes land hard to trade. Here's one idea. Suppose I wanted to purchase an entire building uh, and it is owned by multiple different uh, owners as flats. I buy up a load of the different flats and at the end of it I'm left with one person who is holding out on me on selling one flat. That last person is able to extract from me the entire of the surplus from what I'm trying to achieve by doing that trade. I have this is an example of what's called the land assembly problem in urban areas, and there's the opposite, there's a similar problem of land consolidation in, in rural areas. A final reason why land might be different, and to preempt a discussion we're going to have later, is that people may have different beliefs because of their culture of the importance of land to them and what it signifies about who they are and their place in the world. And I think that there is an interesting distinction to be made here between whether that culture means that it constrains what they're able to do, I would like to sell my land, but I feel like I'm not able to do that, versus whether it creates a preference for having that land. I internalise the idea that my society sees people who own land in a particular way, and I want to have that enjoyment in my life. 
And so from that perspective, we try and we would do this to anything, land, education, health, uh, and we'd come up with a, a view on whether we should do something special associated with that, uh, that subject or whether we just ignore it, it's working well enough. Uh, I'll stop there. Richard, you have anything to add? Sure. Uh, can I be heard at the back? Okay, so just to um, complement a bit what uh, Garrett said, um, if I take a very abstract look, uh, economists view land as just an input of production, any other asset like piece of machinery, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and to use kind of somewhat pre uh, or classical economics terms, it's a means of production. Uh, but it's also uh, it's, uh, in, in the way land is actually transacted in, in an economy. It also involves that it's in embedded in relations of production, which is more a classical term, but in modern terms, whole uh, a nexus of uh, an intricate network of property rights and, 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 and legal, legal framework as well as social norms that govern the use of land. Okay? And, uh, we can think about private property rights, we can think of communal property rights, depending on if it's a natural kind of, you know, it's not, not privately owned land or it's more communally owned land. Now, going back to what uh, Garrett was saying, that uh, I would say a lot of what is now called neoclassical economics, uh, it kind of assumed that these things work in a reasonably efficient way, uh, this uh, relations uh, production, therefore, land would end up in the most productive hands. So therefore, we don't have to worry so much about the distribution of land because it will somehow by, say, the land market, rental, leasing, sales, it'll be allocated efficiently. And therefore, you could separate out your equity considerations that you use uh, you know, uh, resources of taxation and other things to achieve those goals, but otherwise let the markets allocate that. Now, I would say this is roughly the consensus, or at least not a consensus, but a slightly Chicago-centered view of the neoclassical economics around the 60s. So in the next 50 years, I think the view has completely turned on its head. So in fact, you know, one of my, uh, my first uh, really piece of work in development economics, which uh, ironically got me a job at the University of Chicago Economics Department, uh, they, they, it shows that markets are not always efficient and they, they prob probably uh, made a mistake. Uh, namely, you, once you have certain imperfections in the legal system. The land market doesn't work like the standard that you exchange certain title deeds and then you can do what you want with it. Immediately, a lot of these results go out of the window. There may not be any trade-off between, say, equity and efficiency. In particular, if you take the land from the landlord, give it to the tenant, output may go up and this is also more equitable. And you can think of, uh, indeed, a lot of real-world examples of land reforms that were carried out, whether it's in China or other parts of East Asia, etc. You could make, I think it's fairly well accepted within mainstream economics, that more equal land distribution is also actually productivity enhancing. So this, in a way, is how, how the discipline has kind of shifted. So I would say the only uh, few other things I want to, just one or two quick things, and I'll let uh, others, others step in. So I would say one of the recent um, set of research issues that I have been dealing with regarding land is acquisition of land for industry in developing countries. So because farmers seem very unwilling uh, to give up land, and sometimes governments are using coercive you know, laws to get this land. And this, I got into, I did some field work and just talking to farmers and also uh, some, a proper survey. 
One of the interesting things I found that related to what I was saying, that the modern view of the certain imperfections in the property rights system, that some of the classic economic um, ideas don't quite apply. One of the interesting things I found out from these surveys is that the reason farmers may be very unwilling to give up land, because normally if you think, hey, industry is profitable, okay, so you're going to pay them a certain amount of money and you would get the land. So why is there resistance? Why in India and China farmers are kind of, you know, the state has to use coercive laws to get this land? Why is all this happening? And it turns out that, again, it's not just a matter of land market imperfections, to use an economic sort of phrase. But if there are a bunch of other things that don't quite work well, say you don't have pensions, you don't have a social welfare system, land then is a bundle asset. It actually substitutes for a number of other things. And therefore, compared to what you would, the classical framework would imply as to what the, say, price of land should be or the, you know, the social uh, value of land would be in a certain allocation, the private value to a farmer is very, very different. And therefore, once again, the private and the social kind of cost calculations here can be very, very, uh, very, very different. The final point, and I'll, 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 I'll let, uh, let the others uh, share their thoughts, is it's interesting that the importance of land, whether in national income or in overall wealth, has been falling. If you look at some of Piketty's famous um, um, figures, you will see that in developed countries, especially where you go back a long time to see the importance of land and other forms of holding of assets in overall uh, uh, national assets, the importance of agricultural land has asymptotically kind of going to zero almost, you know, in con contrast to other forms of assets as we would expect. One of the interesting things, though, is within developing countries, say India and China, strictly speaking, more emerging country, land still employs a lot of people. So therefore, even though overall its value in, in overall assets has diminished over time, so going back to the question, the importance of land in development, it's still, for example, in the case of India, according to latest estimates, 45% of people directly depend on land in terms of generating a uh, you know, living, even though it generates about 17% of national income. So that also gives you, within this sector, much bigger inequality uh, of, of land ownership than you would have thought just applying um, some of the earlier arguments. Okay, thank you. Let's jump all the way over to the anthropologists and get a reply on your view of this. Hi, thank you. Um, so I have experience working on issues of land reform in South Africa. Like all anthropologists, I tend to take the small picture rather than the big picture. Um, so one of the sort of standard pieces of wisdom in anthropology is that actually property, or even land, is all about relationships between people with respect to things, rather than relationships between people and things. So provided I have the right relationship with the person I'm either getting the land from or giving it to or negotiating, I can get the land securely. But if I don't, I won't. So it's all about what kinds of formal and informal institutional frameworks go around the issue of land itself. <coughs> In the case of South Africa, land came to stand for many things. It had been denied people. They'd been forcibly removed from it during the era of apartheid. When democratization happened in the early 1990s, it came to stand for everything, restored <coughs> sovereignty, restored citizenship, but also, some people thought, the way to make a living. Now, in a sense, the fact that land stood for citizenship, this could be seen as culture, but not in an old-fashioned sense. It was a new sense. It was 
suddenly we're going to get our land back, we're going to get our place back. So how we do that? We're going to get a piece of land. It didn't have any ancient cultural significance, it had a new cultural significance. However, in the case of South Africa, it was a market-oriented idea, and that had to do with the moments of neoliberalization that, that you know, we'd reached at that particular point. It was all about willing buyer, willing seller. Many of the people who wished they could get that, some land felt this was unfair because actually it was very hard to find a willing seller, especially at the, the right price. Um, and if the government had simply said, right, we'll take it all away from so-and-so and give it to you, this wouldn't have necessarily flown from the point of view of general democratization and keeping everyone happy within the nation state. So, and the point really was that the way in which most money in South Africa was made at that time was from business and from sort of employment rather than from farming. So the idea that land was suddenly going to provide a livelihood for everybody was a bit of a red herring. Um, but the key point here was, talking about the people-to-people -people relationship, were there relevant structures in place? And the answer was no. The government said simply, we will return certain land to people, um, and that's it, you know, get on with it and do your best. So in one case where a huge piece of land was res restored to the sand, that's the Bushmen in, in an old-fashioned parlance, um, they immediately got into debt, used the land, put it into hock, and lost it to a local sh shopkeeper who'd basically used it as collateral. So without the relevant structures and arrangements and government institutions in place, the land in its own right was really worth virtually nothing. Then eventually the whole issue of land reform, and it's been going on for now 20 odd years, turned into a bit of a sort of um, palliative. Whenever the government was in trouble about something else, they'd suddenly go, you must get your land back. And suddenly everyone said, oh yeah, that would be a good idea. Instead of realizing actually the welfare system was in pieces or whatever. So it became one of those politicized sort of rallying cries. Um, and in the end, quite a lot of pieces did get, end up get, getting sort of handed over um, because you know, the, the, the institutional frameworks are way too difficult to put in place. And in the end, a lot of so-called so traditional or communal land was simply given to the chiefs to do what they wanted with. Well, what happened? They then started selling it off to mining companies, leaving many women especially, but otherwise kind of poor people, um, without the opportunity. And th th these women and these poor people in these communal areas didn't necessarily want to farm. They just wanted a place to live where they wouldn't have to pay rent. So this goes back to the issue of social welfare. Sometimes land ends up standing in for social welfare. So now you find vast bits of land being sold off by these chiefs. Why? Because there were no institutional framework put in place that would actually do, well, protect it, I suppose, in a much more reasonable way. And so, in a sense, um, this was a kind of negative story about land reform. It's just one story, but it does seem to reveal some of the complicated uh, meanings that can attach to land and the complicated ways in which it has got to do with so many more things other than so-called economic benefit for any specific individual. To offer general reflections on anthropology of land, one thing I find interesting here is that we're using the word land uh, in a very undifferentiated way. Because you know, uh, land which is used for agriculture, and some people are using land just as a, a phrase for agriculture, is obviously different than land on which you have a house, um, or on which you're going to build something else or have a road. Um, and the very idea that you can own land is some idea which 
does rather challenge our conceptions of what property is, uh, as, as I think Deborah was trying to bring out. Um, we have a conception that property is a relationship between a person and a thing, in which that relationship, this comes from Roman law, uh, is, is characterized by our total power um, of the owner over the owner. You can do whatever you want with something. Obviously, that's not really true. I mean, if I have a gun, I can't do anything I want with that gun. In fact, there's very few things, or a car even, you know, I can do of it that aren't regulated. The only thing you can really have absolute right with property is to keep anybody else from doing anything with it. Um, so property is actually a relation of exclusion with everybody else in the world um, if it's private property in relation to a thing. But in fact, even that, that relation of exclusion tends to be very limited. Uh, there are almost always circumstances in which other people might have a claim on something in an emergency, for example, um, in which you have a responsibility to it. Uh, to, and so that, if you look at the actual origins of that kind of weird Roman property idea of law, it, which seems to fly in the face of all common sense, it actually goes back to slave law, you know, where it was a relationship between a person and another person who is a thing because you have total power over them. Um, we transferred that into all these areas where it applies in a rather uncomfortable fashion. Um, so, I mean, Mark Twain had that famous line about buy land, they're not making it anymore. Um, in a way, you know, land is strange because it's not made. Carl, uh, like, unless you're China, I guess they're, they're creating land in the South China Sea right now. But that's the only case I know of someone doing that. Um, I mean, some of Holland is, was made up. Uh, but, um, but, you know, Carl Bondi made the famous point that, you know, modern market economies and political economies based on, on three fictive commodities, which in many societies it would never occur to anybody could be bought or sold. Um, one of which is land, because nobody makes it. The other of which is labor, because nobody makes it. And the third of which is, is money. Um, so these three, three things which aren't actually manufactured at all are treated as if they're the same as the, you know, pots and pans and pens and things you made. Um, and this creates all sorts of, you know, par legal paradoxes. So, um, you know, because land, oh, here's another example, um, you know, can be the place where you grow things, the place where you live, it can also be the place where you go and you die. Um, for a lot of people, what's really important about land is that you're gonna be buried in it someday. Uh, I, I did my field work in Madagascar, um, where you have these ancient villages where anybody, you know, most people who are descended from these villages don't live there anymore. But everybody has to have at least one or two plots of land there because if you don't, you can't get buried in a tomb there. And if you can't get buried in a tomb there, you're not like a noble or whatever it is, you know, status you get from coming from an ancient village. Um, and it, ways, it illustrates how there's a continuity between you know, ownership of land and sovereignty over territory and the very nature of a nation state. In a way, you're owning a piece of sovereignty when you own land, which is not at all true of, you know, when you own a pen. Um, and um, on the other hand, there is one sense where owning land is not like the sovereignty, the, uh, is not like sovereignty, and, and in medieval laws, they, were, they did use the same word for absolute property rights and, 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 and political sovereignty or dominion. Um, and and the, the one way that it is different is that a pen I, I can destroy. Um, so again, according to Roman law, um, you have usus fructus and abusus. You can you know you own something if you can use it, you can uh, enjoy the fruits of it. You know if you have a tree, you can eat the fruit. Um, 
and you uh, abuse those. You could burn down the tree if you really wanted to or chop it down. Um, if, you do, if you only have two of those, the first two, you can't destroy it. It's usufruct. You don't really own it. That's what usufruct comes from. Um, so therefore, it's only really your property if you could destroy it. And it's very similar, as, as some people have pointed out, the idea of sovereignty. You only really have sovereign power over people if you can kill them. They're your subjects if, if you, know, you can execute them. Um, but of course, you can't do that to land, right? I mean, I can I've always thought that the idea of consumption, why is it that eating something is, is seen as, you know, you produce things and you consume them. Any use of things, even if you're driving a car, that's called consumption. It's like eating food. I don't know why driving a car is like eating food, but apparently it is, according to political economy. Actually, in a way, I think I do know why, because of consumption is the only way that, you know, there's a paradox. The only way you know you own something is if you can destroy it, um, then that's a problem because then if you destroy it, you know you had it, but you don't have it. But the only way you could actually destroy something and still have it is if you eat it. <laughs> so that consumption becomes our metaphor for it. But of course, you can't consume land. You, know, you can't you destroy land. It's the one thing over which that kind of sovereignty doesn't apply. There's kind of a, a, a strange paradox about a relationship. Kathy? Well, I'm here in two guises. One of them is that I am a member of the Department of International Development. And one of the things I would especially like to point out to you tonight is that this is a department that has people trained as economists and people trained as anthropologists mm -hmm. in one department. Well, you're in the middle. And that's why I'm in the middle, <laughs> because this, this could be my department of international development. And it's, you can imagine how much fun we have talking about, well, what topics should be covered on a core course reading list? Or what kinds of methodologies should we have our students learn? Because all of this variety of points of view that you're hearing tonight are part of the Department of International Development. And we like to think that that is our strength. Um, but as you can imagine, there are ways in which that can be difficult to work out on a daily basis. But, um, but that's just something for you to keep in mind because we really feel in the Department of International Development that there is a usefulness to having some of these very, very different points of view to bring to mind, to bring to bear when we're thinking about international development. And that that interdisciplinary approach then is what really distinguishes our discipline. And then I'm also a political scientist by training. And so I also said I would answer this set of initial questions about land from the perspective of somebody trained in the study of politics. And there's a kind of interesting thing about that because I went and I looked on the website of the American Political Science Association. It has 49 groups within it of areas of things that are studied in American political science and none of them are land. <laughs> and then I went and I looked Well, I thought, well, maybe the British are better about this. I looked at the Political Studies Association, which is the British version of people who study politics. It has more than 60 groups and there is one called territory. And then when you look at the description, it says this is a group that studies territorial governments. And so we have a kind of funny relationship to land in my home discipline of political science. And that is that it's actually not a topic to which we pay a great deal of attention. But a particular idea about land actually structures our whole discipline. And this is the idea. 
So the idea is, I, we call it a Weberian idea, although David earlier this week told me it comes Weber from the Ehring, took it from, yeah, took yeah. It from Sunday mm -hmm. before that. Weber's teacher. Weber's teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but the Weberian <laughs> idea about land is that you can take the territory of the world, at least since 1648, which is the date to which we, begin, we, we, we cite as a beginning, you can take the territory of the world and it is divided up into non-overlapping territories each of which is controlled by one legally recognized central authority, the state, led by a government. And the thing that makes that, a, an, or, or the special attributes of that, is that that is the actor that has the right to use force legitimately within that territory and the right to govern people within that territory. To the boundary, and then at the boundary, there will be another territory that belongs to another state. And then another territory and another state. And this is then the foundation of the study of politics. This idea that those state boundaries of, of land, it is land, really matter. And that much of what we're interested in then is the way those states are organized politically, the way that those central governments try to, well, the way that they do use legitimate and sometimes illegitimate force within those territories, the way they manage their citizens. These are the primary questions then about politics. And we have, some, it, here it's a different department. In the United States, it's often part of a political science department. International relations then is the relations across those boundaries. So you have comparative politics, national politics inside those boundaries, and you have then international relations across those boundaries. And this is really the fundamental organizing idea of my discipline, my home discipline, and, and it's very much based in land. And then I find it rather interesting that we often then don't really focus on land itself, um, except in some particular ways. We are interested in the idea that land is a source of political power. And we often talk about that in particular times and places. And you heard um, Deborah talking about South Africa and you saw the way that land was used as political power and also political reward and political strategy. So we sometimes will talk about that. Um, thinking, we also are interested in the way that states write laws and regulations about land. And interestingly, this is really quite relevant to both of them. As I was just saying here, for the anthropologists, we do find states often part of these efforts to use land as a kind of control or use it in order to organize populations. We do pay attention to that. We also, with reference to the economists, pay attention to the way that states create legally the property rights that economists are often very interested in as primary institutions. Those are legal artifacts of state behavior. And they are able to do that again because of that primary idea of how we understand land, which is that it is to be governed by those single central states, which may, as JP studies, may sometimes decentralize power to other levels of government. But we're always focused then on that being a, a primary central state at the center of politics. 
One of the questions we were asked also is, is land inequality different from inequality in other assets? And this is a place where we have given some attention to the special role of inequality in land. And in particular, our interest has been in the way that land inequality can be closely connected to questions about democracy, which is a question that's of a lot of interest to us because we have those central governments, we care about them a great deal, we care about the way that they're organized, and we care whether or not they're democratic. And land, countries that have significant land inequality are some of the countries, both historically and in current times, that are some of the least likely to be democratic because uh, large landowners are some of the actors who are most hostile to democracy and they are very able to organize themselves politically and also able to disorganize other actors politically in ways that um, block the achievement of democracy. So these are just some of the ways then that my discipline does talk about land, although again, as I say, I think compared to both of the other major disciplines here at this table, it has not been as central, even though it is so central to the way that we think about our topic of study. I want to ask the panel about UBI, but do you have any reactions that you want to, before we move away from land? I would say the only uh, quick comment in response to David's thing about land is where people die. Mm. Uh, I, I, I want to be the last guy to be the cultural relativist in this table, mm -hmm. but there's a big uh, part of the world population that uh, burn their dead, their oh, funerals, yeah. so therefore uh, oh, yeah. it's ecologically sound as well. So that's a little, uh, gives me a chance to play the uh, cultural <laughs> relativist here. And the other conjecture I was thinking about why the American Political Science Association, et cetera, land is so uh, not so studied. It could well reflect the economic fundamental of land's importance in uh, sort of economic activity as well as uh, and, and overall wealth holdings being relatively less. Mm. Right? <laughs> okay. So. Let's move on to, to another topic before we, we the, I want to have three rounds before we open it up to, to the floor. The, the third will be more disciplinary, but the second one is another thematic topic, UBI, Universal Basic Income. So land, among other things, is, is a source mm. of, of income, a source of, uh, of livelihoods. Universal Basic Income is sort of the opposite of that. It's sort of the income disassociated from other things. So maybe we'll... There are people we'll start, who try to relate them. Well, let, let's start with the anthropologists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think about UBI? Um, is it a good idea? And, and more interestingly, how would we know? How would one judge whether it's a good idea or not? On what basis? Well, um, I was going to, I have a lot of things to say. This. I could try to start with saying that actually the South Africa almost kind of does have it. Uh, maybe I'll talk in the abstract and then talk about the concrete. Yeah. Um, I would say that. Um, one of the proposals, actually, that I've heard out there is that rather than thinking about it as universal basic income, it should be thought of as a land benefit for those people who don't own land. Um, because if you think about it, you know, we have this paradox where on the one hand, a country is supposed to belong collectively to those people who live there, yet somehow it's parceled out. And nobody quite knows how. I mean, even who owns the land in England is, is, is kind of a mystery. Um, there are people trying to figure it out, and they really won't. They make it really hard to find out. Um, 
But um, so one proposal was to simply use that as a basis to say, all right, well, if we're all supposed to equally own this country, why not just pay a dividend to everybody? Um, and um, sometimes based on a land tax or sometimes just in the abstract. But I would say that at, at the idea of universal basic income is largely for, there's three versions of it. And um, I myself am a supporter of the more radical version and I'm very chary of the other two. One is a kind of a right-wing version which is about replacing the welfare state essentially with, with payment, you know, you, can, you can't privatize health and education unless you just, you know, give people money and say, here, go buy the plan you like. Okay, I'm, I'm very opposed to that. Um, um, there is a kind of a liberal version where you just hide people over by giving them a little extra and you just do it in a uniform way. Um, which is nice because it avoids bureaucracy, but um, it doesn't have very radical effects. It will it decrease inequality to a certain degree, but it's meant to be a half measure basically. But then there's the radical version whereby you separate um, work and and compensation entirely, at least potentially, by giving people enough to live on. Um, and thus, the idea is rather than reducing, which is the conservative version, uh, you would want to expand the zone of unconditionality. So you keep, you know, free education, free health, but you also say a you know, basic means of living. We're not going to say free food because obviously different people want to eat different stuff. Uh, so you know, you use money uh, uh, equal. Uh, payments of money for that. Um, my, just to finish why I think it's a good idea, um, it, it's interesting, there's a huge debate between people who want a job guarantee and people who want universal basic income. I think both together would be nice, but, um, but um, as an alternative, you know, those people who see them as one or the other, tend, it's a nice divide between people who basically see themselves as part of the administration sort of represent the perspective of the professional managerial class where they don't, just don't trust people to decide for themselves what they want to contribute to the world and those who do. I, I myself believe in freedom. Um, and um, my research on, on bullshit jobs in particular, you know, we discovered up to something like a third of people feel that their jobs are completely pointless, um, that they're not actually doing anything, and um, are, are, are quite miserable as a result. And I think that, you know, the two major objections you get to a universal basic income can be answered by that very fact. Um, a, people say, well, you know, if you just give people money, they'll sit around and do nothing. Well, no, all these people are getting paid to sit around and do nothing are completely unhappy. They'd much rather be doing something to contribute to the world. And second of all, people say that, you know, if you give people money and say, just do something, whatever you want to contribute to the world, they might do something useless. Um, you know, and sure, you'll have a lot of, like, bad poets and um, annoying street musicians and things like that. But, but you know, if just one of them actually turns out to be Shakespeare, you know, hey, you got your money back. But um, even despite the, you know, aside from that, A, at least they'll be happy, and B, you know, that it seems really unlikely that you're going to get a, a third of all people doing something totally pointless, which it seems to be what we have now. <laughs> <laughs> so this is quite lucky for me because this hits on my second uh, most recent um, s study, which is about indebtedness in South Africa. And um, probably a bit unlike David, I'm, I'm actually very interested in issues of bureaucracy, regulation, redistribution and exactly how people called second order decision makers by John Elster actually have to kind of calibrate and slice up the pie. Now, some of you might have read a book by Jim Ferguson called um, 
give a man a fish. And it's all about this idea of the basic income grant. And part of the way he came up with some of those ideas was based on some ideas that were being debated within South Africa early on in the 1990s. As it happens, they never did have a basic income grant, but they did have a, a large number of grants that they gave out to poor people, child support grants, um, disability grants, and old age pensions. About 17 million are distributed right across the piece. But here, here we come to the probably one of the most insightful things that anthropologists do, and that is that by studying life on the ground, you come up with unintended consequences that maybe nobody ever thought of. And one of the things that has happened in South Africa is that a large company was given the government tender to give out these social grants, immediately started selling products um, to the people who got those income grants. And those included uh, um, debt, credit, funeral plans, insurance, and a bunch of other things. So until this was actually re-regulated, and regulation is not one of the things South Africa is very strong on, we found that vast numbers of people, because they were being given relatively small amounts of money, um, were simply using those, and they were basically these money lenders were taking them as collateral, so people were sort of borrowing extra money at vast amounts of interest um, using that collateral, using that money that they got from the government as a collateral. So ultimately, the money lenders were getting the money, and the people in the middle were, were just getting borrowed money, which they could never pay off. The, the rates of interest were absolutely shocking. So in a sense, I suppose you could say in any given sort of proposal, whether it be land, redistribution, or universal basic income, um, the wider context is key. If you have regulatory facilities that are adequate and people that are not going to make this possible, then maybe it will work. But if you don't, it's going to be a disaster, as it is indeed in South Africa. So, economists, UBI sounds like a great idea. Shall we do it? Um, I would say that in, in certain forms it already exists. And just to give you sort of a very, uh, make a very sort of straightforward point, essentially the concept of UBI is that it's unconditional in the sense that it doesn't, it's not contingent of you working or looking for work or usual criteria that is involved with welfare. So to the extent we create such a lump sum amount that you're entitled to, whether you're working or not, and also as an individual, it's not a family-based thing. So there, you know, and one of the interesting aspects of uh, UBI, which is uh, uh, maybe not so well noticed, is if you're a well-to-do spouse of a rich person, you still would qualify for it, whereas under the existing welfare system, it would be some notion of family income. So therefore, some of the, so my, so the first point is that some version of UBI can be accommodated relatively straightforwardly within the kind of welfare system by basically making it more individual-based as well as uncontingent on, on whether you're looking for jobs and so on. But going back to what uh, was said earlier, there are several versions of it. So my own take on it is, those who are coming more from the left of the political spe spectrum, uh, left of center or, or whatever, uh, certainly the non-radical left, uh, I would say UBI is viewed as a complement to a whole set of other welfare measures. It's not viewed as a substitute, whereas those who are coming from it, whether it's Milton Friedman or others who have actually advocated it, they're coming, they're looking at it to replace, as, as it was said, a uh, number of um, other existing welfare things, um, social um, uh, sector, etc. My only concern about UBI, and it goes back to maybe some of the more radical version of it, 
In the end, whether you take an economics version of it or even a classical Marxist version of it, you need a production system that generates surplus. If nobody is working, you want health and education, and you want a lump sum transfer everybody, you're going to have to ask who's going to produce the surplus, who's going to produce you know, this glass, who's going to produce all these things. Now, some form of it was tried out. It was called feudalism. You, you basically, within the feudal class, you got a universal basic income, but you had a whole class of serfs to work for you for that. So until we have raised a whole generation of robots with whom we can then establish a Marxist relationship of exploitation of their surplus, I don't think that form of radical uh, version of it really satisfies the adding up constraints of income equals expenditure. Okay. I guess there's so much I'd like to say about this, <laughs> but I'm gonna try and limit myself somehow. So let me try and address a little bit more the how would we know question and try to stick to that. So I think that um, the Chicago School neo classical economic uh, argument from UBI is quite simple, which is that it creates fewer distortions. So if I give you money when you are begging at a train station in a poor country, I force you to give up your time and come to that train station to get my money. I think that's why we feel really uncomfortable about giving money to beggars. If I make my transfer to you unconditional, i.e. you can get it at your place of residence or where you are, then I don't require you to, to, create, to take that action. And so therefore, there's a strong sort of economic case for giving just, if I want to give welfare, I just give money. And I think that in response to the replace versus supplement, I'm also gonna differ with both panelists here, which is, well, if you give enough money, and if there's no reason separately that you want to give things like education differently, then the welfare of people and their freedom is higher than if you force them to take part of your money in forms of other services. That would be the general uh, neoclassical economic view. On the other side of this, it's a little bit weird because there's a schizophrenic thing where there's this belief that if you give the poor money, they'll stop working, yeah. right? Which is bizarre, I think, a little bit. But let's just uh, say we could try to work out the answer to these questions. And some economists over the past 20 years, I suppose, have been running experiments. You could broadly experiment with policy in many ways, but I think the best way to do it where you learn the most is you randomly give out money to people and you see what they do. And so <laughs> there have been a number of, of papers written about this, but I think the most exciting one recently talks to both of these discussions. And it's basically a very, very large cash transfer to a small number of Kenyan villages given by the uh, uh, NGO Give Directly. And when they give that money to these villages, what they see is, first of all, no reduction in labour. In fact, increases in labour. So that does tend to rule out this idea that the poor will suddenly stop working. They actually see a 2.6 times multiplier on every dollar spent. That means the GDP of these mini villages goes up 2.6 times the amount of money that's pumped into them. What do they think is happening? Well, people who were idle labour, who were sitting around with not much to do, suddenly there's an influx of money and all of a sudden people start buying things from each other. 
Sounds very Keynesian, right? It's what we do in a, in a recession. We also, so that suggests that we, we, we don't see this crowding out of work. The other thing is we, don't, we do see this evidence that other things might be creating distortions. Because when I take this study and I compare it to lots of other studies that I know that are randomly evaluating different development policies, perhaps microfinance, then the dollar-for-dollar dollar impact of giving people cash appears to be higher than the dollar-for-dollar dollar impact of some of these other well-intentioned policies. That would tend to suggest that those policies, in fact, are far less efficient because they tend to require you to do other things, as well as having massive overheads where they pay for people like me to run around writing expert reports. So I think that those sort of sets of, of experiments, they're not a UBI, but they are experiments on giving people money and what you will see if that occurs. Now, of course, they're limited. You can't study whether the state over time will ratchet down the value of the UBI, for example. You can try and think about that. But they're sort of beginning on some of what would probably be the easier questions that you'd want to try and answer here. Kathy? Yeah, well, I won't say too much because this is a topic actually where I think a political scientist might do either of these two things. We have political scientists who do experimental work very similar to the kind of thing that Jared was just talking about. Uh, we also have political scientists who would do studies very similar to the kind of work that Deborah was talking about. Maybe not David. David might be outside the range of what we would do. But, um, <laughs> but the rest of it I can easily see my discipline doing. We have a lot of interests generally. We are a professional man we have a lot of professional managerial interests or interest in the professional managerial class we're interested in the kinds of policies that countries adopt and how exactly those those frameworks are set up and their results the one thing that i think we would add that nobody has really raised so far which is we would add the question of sort of why is it that particular politicians or parties might propose this um, why is this in the political interests of both right and left-wing actors at different times? Um, how does this link them to their social bases? How do they see this as a strategy for winning office or winning re-election? Um, so we would add that set of questions. We would ask questions like whether there's some kind of mobilization from potential recipients themselves. Uh, we're interested in questions about policy diffusion. So um, in Brazil, which I study, it has conditional cash transfers that it developed around the same time that Mexico did. So that's not free basic income because it has conditions on it. But it is, it is a, a basic income for keeping your kids in school and getting them vaccinated and a set of things like that. And those policies that were developed in Brazil and Mexico in the late 1990s have now diffused across much of Latin America and beyond. So we're interested in those kinds of phenomena. But I think, we, as I say, we would probably study the topic itself um, in the ways that both sides uh, do. Okay. I, um, unless there's anything else burning to say, I, wanted, I, I do want to get to the questions. So I, I want to ask two separate questions to, to the different disciplines. Let's start this time with the economists. Do economists really believe in culture? In, in your economic models, in your theories, is culture something that's worthy of study, or is it just like we a We can bin? keep things uh, fast and uh, have more time for questions, and the short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> you can just Google, uh, in Google Scholar, economics and culture, and you'll see thousands of 
things that have been, you know, so anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really trying to... Uh, yeah, so them. I would, yeah, yeah. I, if you are a graduate student in economics and you'd like to publish in the QJE in the next little while, I suggest you study culture. So it's kind of the cool thing. Whether our can view of culture coincides with the anthropologist's view, I think would be a longer discussion. But certainly there's something out there that we think is culture and people are currently excitedly working on it. Um, I think it has great potential and you know, some really tricky and interesting questions. And I want to ask the anthropologists, do anthropologists really believe in development? <laughs> well, Meaning I for, I would... the, for themselves or for society at large? <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would count myself among the anthropologists who are interested in various kinds of change, including planned change, which is the kind that was sort of brought in in the 80s and 90s, and also these more sort of free market type changes, which have maybe occurred more recently. So it's not necessarily whether I believe in those processes, but I definitely observe them happening. And so the answer, the short answer to that is yes. I can't speak for anthropologists as a whole, um, but I would say anthropologists tend to take terms like development from a largely critical perspective and investigate the sort of assumptions, universalistic assumptions that are built into it, and I think they're, they're right to do so. They do that with a lot of things I don't think they're right to do that with. I mean, anthropologists will say the same thing about democracy, and I think, you know, there are, there's, are ways to universalize some terms which take account of cultural difference and, and still maintain them. I don't know if development is one, because I often think that the way development is most often deployed is as a kind of a euphemism for, you know, is it possible to imagine a way to make people in the global south richer without also making them more powerful? That is to say, you know, if I'm in Belgium and I'm trying to like go run a development project in Burundi, you know, I, I, I am sad that people there are poor and, and, and um, I would like them to be richer, but I don't want Burundi to be as powerful and an influential country as Belgium, even though it's about the same size, presumably. Um, and, you know, in a way, you don't want to admit that, but what you're doing is ultimately trying to relieve the symptoms of an of unequal power relationship without actually addressing the unequal power relationship in the end. So I think in that sense, maybe it's a bad term. Maybe we should come up and just call things what, we act, what they actually are. Do we want to, you know, we would like people to be wealthier, you know, we would like people to be more powerful, we would like to, you know, to do so, address inequalities that exist and, um, and it, when it comes to development as a universalistic term, I think, um, you know, I, I don't think there's anybody in the world who doesn't want there to be a modern hospital available in their area. You know, there are certain things everybody could agree on. Um, whether they want that to be the only form of medical practice that they undergo, that might be another question. But um, I think there are things that probably everybody agrees on. But I think that turning them into a term like this allows us to import certain assumptions about universal human desires and nature, which includes some very dubious ones, like the idea that if people don't have, uh, you know, aren't, aren't forced into it, they won't work, or so forth and so on. You know, there's a whole intellectual foundation which is built into the package, baked into these notions, 
which are more dangerous, um, I think, than the concept itself. So I think, yeah, we need new terms. Kathy, if you don't mind, I think we'll go on to the yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Okay, so why don't we take some questions from the audience? And there are a couple of roving mics. Um, so just put up your hand, and I'll, I'll recognize a couple. So over there, please, in the second row. Um, Jay, if you take the, take the mic, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just wanted to hop on to what was just said about development. Mm. And yeah, my question is, what does development actually look like? Because um, early on, the, the term emerging countries um, was mentioned which is a sort of proxy for what 10 years ago we used to call LEDC and MEDC and all sorts of things. The issue I have with the term emerging countries is that it's a subtext that the country hasn't yet adopted a modern neoliberal financialized economy and that then sort of plays out in the built environment. The sort of, the assumption is that an emerging country hasn't yet got this sort of glassy uh, steel tower thing that's replaced the sort of um, informal settlements and industrial landscapes that were there before. And I think the issue I have is, is that development doesn't necessarily refer, or doesn't often seem to refer to the actual needs of the people there. And development often means that the country hasn't yet adopted a very inefficient way of allocating land by what's most fashionable along um, with sort of financial investments such as like luxury flats in London or sort of um, commercial property in the 80s and 90s in America, which and these buildings were just built because investors thought that they needed them. Investors thought they would make money from them. It wasn't because the people in the area actually needed them. And I wanted to see what does development actually look like to all of you? Um, what does it mean for, the, for land allocation, for instance? And do you think that the current mode of development, the current connotations of development reflect that? Take one more if there's another one. Yes, gentleman over here, and then we'll, we'll have some answers. Hi, um, I'm Robin Palmer. I've been a land rights activist for about 50 years. Um, you mentioned UBI. Well, I was deported from Ian Smith's UDI in Rhodesia in 1965 because I was doing a thesis on the politics of land hmm. uh, in that country. And I'm just amazed that we've been going for so long and nobody's mentioned the global land grab and what's happening in many parts of the world. Mm. Massive corruption and really disgusting things going on. So my, my, my plea is to wake up, LSE, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, what should development really be like in the global land grab? Who would like to pitch in first? Well, I've just got one very particular answer to your question, and that is, I think the study of development, certainly from the point of view of my discipline, has expanded out massively in, in a whole variety of ways. So my colleague Katie Gardner wrote a book on this in, in Bangladesh, and she wasn't only talking about these huge big oil companies, Chevron in this case, which in many ways had the, many, the negative kinds of effects we often associate with development, but she also spoke about people from Bangladesh who'd left and, and come to England and were sort of giving gifts to people back home. So in a sense, there's also indigenous, if you want to call it, or internally generated forms of, of development from migrants giving gifts to people back home. It's not always just something that's been done by you know, the global north to the global south. So I think it's important to bear in mind this huge variety of things that we actually capture underneath that term. So. I sort of, this is interesting because I think there's a huge change in what economists do in, in terms of what's called development economics from 
what you're talking about to what we actually do. So the average thing that I do is working in a village with a group of people who are very, very poor and thinking about whether there's anything that I can do to provide an idea or a system or, a, or anything that would allow that individual to live a better life as judged by that individual's own view of what a better life would be. Now, that has nothing to do with building buildings. It's right down at what can I do uh, for that one person and that one group of people. Um, I mean, some people within economics will say that therefore we're not studying the big questions of where GDP growth comes from and there is criticism. Um, but I think that sort of, you know, there's a, there's a big push towards what I guess you could call much more about poverty alleviation in developing countries and the sort of genuine feeling that there's real need to help do something to make people's lives better. Um, and how you judge that is, is very, very difficult. But I think the goal is if that individual or that group of individuals would themselves feel that their lives have improved, and then that's a, a success. Kathy? I was mostly just going to agree with Deborah um, that what we mean by development is a very, very wide variety of things. But I did want to pick out one thing in particular that I think um, well, it's particularly important to the course I teach on global environmental governance, but we haven't talked about environmental issues at all tonight. Mm. But I really am convinced that it's very difficult to talk about development in any very meaningful sense if we're not taking into account both environmental changes that have happened, environmental changes that will happen, the environmental consequences of the things that we do. So I think that however we think about development, including in our small villages or in our big buildings, I mean, I think whatever the conception of development is, we really can't talk about that without thinking about environmental dimensions of it. Mm -hmm. I've just got one point to make, Robin, in response to what you asked. I agree there's a huge amount of worry about this whole global land grab phenomenon, and I haven't read up that much about it, but what I do know is that there was a whole debate about it maybe four or five years ago, in which some of the people writing about it mentioned that there was also quite a moral panic going on about it. So often it's kind of being regarded as something that's going on right across the board, whereas in fact one needs to be quite specific about the types of things that are happening. And without knowing more about the specific examples you're asking about, I wouldn't be able to answer. However, it is interesting that it's even going on in Britain. And in fact, especially so, um, there's a book by Brett Christophers recently came out showing how vast amounts of land in, in Britain have been sold off to pri in, into private hands, not only within, but also outside of the country. And so we often tend to think of this as something that's going on in China, buying stuff in like Ethiopia, but it's actually going on far more broadly across the, the, the piece. And it's much more about... So privatization, yeah, London is, is another one, yeah. So just one uh, quick comment. Um, I think maybe there's a terminological confusion, but what I was saying earlier about, uh, at the very beginning, about interviewing farmers about land acquisition, that is a legal term for land grab. So essentially what we were doing in the case of India, our government applying eminent domain to take away land from farmers, and the resistance to that, that basically kind of lets a couple of industrialization projects to essentially not happen. And so therefore, I would say certainly at least some parts of LSE are awake to the problem, indeed a very major problem of land grab or land acquisition in developing countries. 
Yes, question here and a question there. We'll, we'll, and let's start here. We'll just we'll have the mic right here. Thank you. Um, so how would the inclusion of reproductive labor and the care sector affect the economy because it is considered a non-market activity? And how would the inclusion of the care sector reproductive labor be, um, be altered by being included in the economy? Because in a lot of societies it is highly valued and it's oftentimes viewed in a very gendered way and so just economically and, anth and anthropologically. And there's another question here. Um, so from my understanding, for UBI to be sustainable, you need to remove welfare spending and use that money to fund the UBI in order for there to be no inflation. Uh, but do you think it's possible to have a welfare state along with UBI? And by extension, do you think that the government can have the two systems together by cutting costs, by privatizing the distribution of the money, perhaps? There was one more. Let's just have a third one here, if we can in the jeans, uh, can you pass the, yeah. And we'll bundle these three together. Hi, so in short, uh, my question would be, can the more developed nations afford the economic development of the less developed nations? Uh, as uh, Professor Graeber noted uh, with his uh, Belgium and uh, Burundi example, um, if you have, or power is a relative thing, so if you have these uh, uh, less developed nations developing in relative terms to the developed nations, then the developed nations lose their uh, higher bargaining power uh, when it comes to politics and economics uh, compared to the less developed nations. So does that create an incentive for the more developed nations to keep the less developed nations less developed? What are the dynamics uh, in the situation? Okay, who would so, like to? So I, I want to, um, yeah. I, I thought this was a great question, uh, but since the UBI thing is something I've worked on quite closely, so let me give a quick answer and let the others come in to the other questions. So I would say in all the, and I, I recently, there's a beverage, um, now one of the symposia that's coming up next week, which is exactly going to be on UBI, uh, and, and, and a number of us will be there next Wednesday. So first of all, when we say where is the budget going to come from, most responsible calculations for UBI are essentially looking at other direct transfer programs. So we are, it's not really talking about cutting education spending or health spending. So maybe it's a terminological thing, but when you say the welfare state, it includes a bunch of these things including. But what we're talking about is whether you're going to have workfare type things versus you cut that and give it unconditionally. So that's clarifying point number one. Number two, Economists think of UBI in a very structured way, which effectively it is a negative income tax, because think about it, whoever you are, at the end of the day, you're either going to get some money on balance or pay some money, right? That's how it's going to all add up, right? So therefore, de facto, the funding plans are built into it. Now, whether we should have more capital gains taxes, other ways of re raising revenues, that's where the debate is within public economics. Yeah, in addition to the UBI thing, I mean, bear in mind that um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, if they just took all the money they printed for quantitative easing, the European Central Bank print, you know, created in a desperate but failed attempt to create a little inflation, um, and just gave it to people, they would have given, I, I 
saw in the figures it was a pretty subsist several thousand euros of to every family a year to every family in europe easily so and that was money they made up they had no inflationary effects in fact it seems they were trying to create a little inflation and failed um so so i think you know we have a false idea of how financial economies really work that um, mitigates you know again what are the real causes of inflation i mean inflation does kick in at a certain point but it, you know the simple quantitative theory can't explain that there's a n numerous factors um and um okay so in terms of the caring sector i think that a lot of the people who have made the strongest case for ubi to me are people who came out of wages for housework and, and movements like that because you know it, wages for housework was always a bit of a provocation they didn't really think about like where the money would come and how it would be distributed they were just pointing out the contradiction of capitalism whereby you know if all of this had been paid in a way that they think is fair in any other context especially if men are doing it um you know they'd have to give half the money you know that's being spent uh to, to labor that's now unpaid um but you know at a certain point there was whole debate within wages for housework uh, andre gore has also weighed in and made a bit impression on a lot of people pointing out that you know if you were really serious about this it would mean commoditization of all the things that you least want commoditized and don't you really want a society where you're decommoditizing things um and a lot of uh, feminists who had been involved in wages for housework said oh yeah well you know ubi might be the perfect solution for that uh, as a transitional mode to moving uh, towards a decommoditized economy. Um, and essentially, you're being paid to do care. And it's up to you to decide who you want to care for and whether it's others, yourself, your cat, you know, <laughs> or anyone else. Um, and we're not going to tell you. Um, I, I've been thinking about the whole idea of, of, of care as a way of reimagining political economy because I think that, you know, since economics is so based on micro uh, micro models which assume rationalize rational maximizing individuals which can't account for things like care at all um, and thus creates a completely distorted idea of what humans are like hence again That's the idea <laughs> and <laughs> hence again the idea that if you gave people money they, they would just sit there which is it's empirically untrue um, but why do people assume that it's because you have these mini max models that are wrong um, and and so I suggested at one point uh, that maybe we could reimagine economics um, with, instead of the classic political economy terms of production and consumption what would it look like if we substituted care and freedom you know, because like production and consumption implies growth, um, implies a constantly increasing total amount of goods and services, which is basically unsustainable. Freedom you can maximize can grow continually, you know, presumably without well, actually destroying the planet. Um, and, um, and, and they have an intrinsic relation to each other because care is ultimately about trying to, to maintain or increase another person's freedom. That's why a prison isn't providing care, you know, even though they feed and clothe you. Um, um, and, and if we imagine it in that way, that, you know, I think that we could completely reconfigure political economy in a way which would make that kind of work the primary form of value-producing labor. Um, the whole thing would look very different. Does Kathy, Garrett, would either of you like? I wanted to respond to the yes, please, who hasn't had a response. I, I'm interested why you think that development is a zero-sum game. 
Mm. I think there's absolutely no reason to think that it is. And Smith and Ricardo, at the very least, give us examples in which it's not. And whether they're true or not, I, I don't know. I think there's a need for you know, empirical work, and it's not my particular area, but the starting point of zero-sum seems wrong. And politically, I think it's very interesting. So you get a group of people who think that we are neo-imperialists and we tear to control the developing world, and as a consequence, they infer from that that this development thing is a zero-sum game. But that does tend to feed into the group of people who are on the right, and who will use that to say, no, we can't have migration. Yes, we do have to close <laughs> off trade. We do have to close down factories in China because it's a zero-sum competition between the United States and the developing world. So I think that the first question should be, do you have any reason to think that it would be zero-sum? What's the reason why you would start with that to start with and, and work from there? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that depends a little bit on whether you think that people desperately want that power. But we can at least conceptualize a world, is my main point, in which this isn't an issue. We are all perhaps specialized in the things that our countries or our individuals do best, and we're all providing something which is of value to everyone else in the world. And in that environment, there's, there's not a lot of competition and there's not a lot to have power over, really. You know, we might want to fight about whether you're the country that produces the, the cheap goods in factories or we're the country that are the engineers. But ultimately, if we're all engineers and all of the cheap goods are produced by robots, then there's not a lot left to fight about. Any final comments from our panel? So just a quick comment. I mean, I would say that this whole stereotype about economics being all about full rationality, let me just say two words, behavioral economics, uh, Nobel Prize last year, is exactly about departures from rationality. And also as much as I think an economist's view of what anthropologists should be doing and not doing too much of cultural relativism is unlikely to be accepted with warm uh, embrace, I don't think uh, in the end there's a lot of internal churning that goes on within economics and a lot of what are stereotyped from outsiders, you know, stereotypical views have been increasingly, you know, competitive markets, rational agents, these are all Anybody who's keeping in touch with what's going on as opposed to stereotyping would be sort of, you know, will be seen very, very clearly. Can I respond to that? Uh, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to draw it to a close <laughs> because we could continue with responses and it's late on a Friday night. So let me close by thanking our panelists for a really interesting conversation and thanking all of you for staying here till almost eight.
weekend.